I never Today is uh, March 21st, 1990. My name is Sister Prince, and I am interviewing Helen Nash, who has been a pediatrician in St. Louis for over 40 years. Over 40. Over 40. I'm, I'm looking at a clipping that was in the Post-Dispatch uh, uh, lauding uh, Helen Nash for being in medicine 40 years, and you say your patients did this? Yes, I have a... Um a very bright patient who had been her pediatrician ever since she came to St. Louis as a little girl, mm -hmm. nine, ten years old. And I was her pediatri pediatrician for her son. And we had developed a long relationship, which is one of the things I think pediatrics is, and teaching children how to handle a relationship with a person outside the family so that when they begin to separate from their own families and adolescents. They have listening posts to which they may go. You may use the church like this. You may use your scout leader. You may use your pediatrician or your favorite teacher. And um, she said, I casually mentioned to her that I would be practicing 40 years last July 1st. And that the first patient I had seen on July 1st, 1949, still brought his children into my office. Mm -hmm. And that I still knew the family. And that the daughter in the family comes from Kansas City once, once a year for me to see her little girl, because I am that pediatrician. Um, and she said, well, we have to do something special. And I didn't, I said, well, yeah, I was thinking that we'd go out to a French restaurant yeah. or we would go down to the river and watch it go by. I've been watching the river go by a number of years. Mm -hmm. And I thought no more about it until Dr. Colton said to me, I have to talk to you privately and you can't go out of town <laughs> June the 15th and 16th because this group has come to me and they are planning a Helen Nash celebration mm -hmm. day. She went to Dr. Colton. Dr. Colton is, is the um, professor of pediatrics at Washington University and the medical director of Children's Hospital, St. Louis Children's Hospital. Um, and we had gotten to be good friends when he first came here. I think it was because I told him how I thought things really were rather than what I thought he wanted to hear. Uh, and I found him to be a really fine man, especially in his relationships with the staff. Uh, he caught on to the idea and he expanded it into much more than I think she had even planned. She had thought of something like a luncheon, but he had a musical at his house. Mm -hmm. And the people in the symphony whose children had cared for played oh. chamber music. And we invited a lot of friends and a lot of the staff. And then they had Helen Nash there. He had a speaker who was a pediatrician who is still a generalist, not a specialist, uh -huh. Dr. Green. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Green gave a marvelous talk on, on the Friday morning conference about what pediatrics is changing into and what HMOs are doing to pediatrics. Uh, health maintenance organizations. They are destroying relationships. Um, 
And then they had a marvelous luncheon on the link. That is the building between the clinical sciences building and the main mm -hmm. washu buildings across this autumn. And I was overwhelmed at the elaborateness of the whole thing. And then we had over 200, all the, I believe everyone we invited came it was just a great celebration. I had ex-patients come back in town for it, and I had a little patient who is a doctor. At, in, she's a pathologist in California, and she came back, and it was really fulfilling. It must have been. And made me feel like all those days of battering my head against the wall had not been in there. Paid off. Paid off. You touched a lot of people, and, and they I had wanted touched you to a lot know of people, that. and they let me know it. Um, I had parents of children who had died, and I'd been through the death process and the grieving process mm -hmm. with them, came to the uh, luncheon to say we haven't forgotten. Yeah. Uh, and I found that especially while I was in the first years, I used to be distressed when the patients would have to get angry with me when a child died, be it accidental or from leukemia or something like that. And I had to learn to work out better ways of dealing with an impending death than allowing patients to become angry. You touched now. Huh? You touched now. Uh-huh. And, um, and I did that, and I found it was by talking. <laughs> you, that you really have to talk. Um, let them talk. You have to let them talk. You have to let them work out all their feelings. You have to let them work out all the angry things. Of course, I read Elizabeth Robbins' book, Death and Dying, and read a lot of other things on death in little children and how families feel about losing children, how other siblings feel about losing children. Did it, did it go into children losing parents? It went into children losing parents, and for example, I remember one year a grandmother came in with two children who were having nightmares, and I asked her, what, you know, anything upsetting had happened. And she said, well, yes, the, the parents had come to her and, and made her sign a paper saying that if anything happened to them, she would have the custody, and they had done it through their lawyer. And a week later, this young couple was killed in an accident mm -hmm. on 40. And she had the children just bam, overnight their parents had disappeared. And um, the children were in a rage because they didn't know why these two people didn't come back, why are these strangers handling us? And they were having nightmares, they were screaming and crying. And then when the grandmother and I talked about it, and I said, how awful for you, how awful, but how wonderful that they fixed it so the person has the children whom they wanted to rear them. And then she began to do her own crying. She had, she had thought that she should not cry because it would upset the children. I said, well, I believe it is more upsetting for children to think that a person can be erased overnight and no one shows any signs. No one cries, no one grieves, the pictures disappear. And uh, so she had a good crying time. I have found that works well with almost anyone who loses somebody dear suddenly, or loses them when they know the death is impending. Uh, people don't know that they're allowed, that they're, it's okay. People don't know it's okay to cry. Uh, I remember when my own husband died about 10 years ago, I went to <laughs> make arrangements and when I came back in kindness to me, my housekeeper had
put up all his pictures and was getting ready to change the bedroom around. No, no, no. Don't erase him. Right. I'm not right. planning to forget him. Okay. And I won't forget him this week anyway. <laughs> so. well, and I have had parents say for many times, is it really all right to keep the pictures around? Because, you know, they too would like to see the pictures of the dead person. Mm -hmm. And I say yes. So, Where do you think that comes from? Uh, be brave, be strong, don't cry. Where does it come? I don't know, but I know that it has got to get better before the whole society gets better. I am even amazed when I see people who age, who lose their parents, and then the following week they, they are attending to this and to that, to things that... Mm -hmm. um, the last things. Um, no, no, they're, they're, they're back at their routines mm -hmm. when they it's not that they have to go to work I can't I can't explain it they, they may go to a party they may right. you know mm -hmm. and I don't know how they do it I, I don't know why they do it I don't know where that I don't know why they do it either I uh, had a college friend that we had been really friendly since uh, September 1938 I met her freshman week and uh, we developed a really long, strong friendship. There's never been a year we didn't see each other, never a week we didn't talk to each other in these whole years. And last summer we were going to Russia together. And her son called me a week before we were supposed to leave and said, my mom is in the hospital. She's had a heart attack. And I was very close to him and his wife and children. And I went right away. And when I got there, the children said, Here's another mama. They called her mama. Uh, she never came to. And we sat there and watched her die in three days. Boom, gone. It was horrible. And uh, the nicest thing about the whole thing is we all cried. You know, yeah. we all yeah. cried. We all, people said, Can you come to them? No, we can't come anywhere. We can hardly get up and get dressed. Uh, and what are you going to do? Well, we. We did have an open house kind of thing because she did not want a funeral and neither did he. And then we had a, then we shut the house down and went away for a week mm -hmm. just to sort of regroup. Yeah. And we came back and had a um, memorial service at the Ethical Society in which everybody could get up and say what he wanted to say. And then his, her son thanked everyone, but that he had to do his own private grieving with his family and he had to go on now you know he couldn't just sit with a bunch of people and continue all year I thought it was appropriate but it was a frightful experience and I think we let the children cry you know they would they had nightmares they cried and they would give away they said I'm take some of her clothes and they said no don't give her clothes away she will need it he said, she's not coming back, she won't leave. And the oldest child is uh, six, and they had a cremation. And she said, I, don't, I believe in reincarnation, and I don't want you to give any body parts away or cremate her because she would need her body. Mm -hmm. Which I thought that a child could even say it, you know. It's very nice. But you have to let yourself grieve, and her... Her son was into more denial because he's a man, but her daughter-in-law. Because he's a man. But men do that. Men don't cry, you know. Mm -hmm. Her daughter-in-law 
really is still breathing and still cries whenever she pleases. Mm -hmm. And he says, I'm worried about Patty crying. Yeah. <laughs> I said, let Patty cry. And <laughs> we're worried about you. We're worried about you. Now, he did cry one day. Well, they, they don't have. Because when we got to the hospital, we got to the hospital to say they were going to tube feed him. We said, no, you're not going to preserve a brain stem. You're not going to do that to her. But just a minute. That's mm -hmm. the light meter. You mentioned, you mentioned earlier that uh, you and Dr. Colton had a long relationship because... Had a good relationship, good not long because he hadn't been here but a few years. He is the latest medical director at Children's Hospital. Oh, I thought you... I, it, I felt that you said that when you came, you I told when him... when he came. Oh, when he came, you told him how... He had interviews with older staff members mm -hmm. and what they thought about things at the hospital and what they thought should be changed or improved. Mm -hmm. And I told him some things that, like I told him, they had a psychiatrist who was NG. When did he come? About like three or four years. Well, I guess he's been here four or five years now. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's see, you came in 1949 mm -hmm. to St. Louis. Mm -hmm. uh, 45. 45? Okay. Um, what did you find when you got, you came to Homer G. Phillips? I finished medical school in September 45, and I came to Home Phillips to do a general internship in October 45, because at that time, that was the one good rotating internship you could get that had a guarantee of a residency if you wanted one. Uh, there were only a few hospitals that black interns could go. In Providence in Chicago, Katie Biden Reynolds in North Carolina, and Flint Goodrich in New Orleans. Is it the one in North Carolina? Kate Katie Biting Biting Reynolds. Okay. I think that's right. Okay. Um, but there were no big Harlem Hospital in New York. Mm -hmm. But two medical schools were turning out a hundred and some graduates a year, and all those you had to really compete to get those positions. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, and you went to Mahari. Mahari. Mahari, uh -huh. thank you. Mahari. And I actually went there because my father went there. Uh, and I came here because it was a good rotating internship. And everyone in, in, in Mahari always wanted to come. To, a larger percentage of the class would come here to do an internship. When I came here, the town was really segregated in the old-fashioned style, as was Nashville and Atlanta. It's everywhere in the United States was segregated. Uh, there were still some things here that were really pleasant. Car fare was a nickel or a dime, and you could get transfers and ride forever. Mm -hmm. And that the car, the car, those trolley cars were not Jim Crow. Yes. No, no, they weren't Jim Crow. Were they? Yes. Mm -hmm. You sat in the back. Yes. They had to be. Maybe they weren't. Let's don't say I don't even remember. I remember riding them mm -hmm. because you could. I rode. Through the, ride through the black neighborhoods and go I'd like ride get on Sarah Street car and go to to the garden. Um, Charles Garden was called then, uh, and everything was free. You know they they sent uh, everything that the citizen helped support. They sent free tickets to the hospital. I went to the municipal opera for years on the free tickets because they were never used. I found at Home of Hopes they were never used. Mm -hmm. Could you sit? Were you wanted there, uh, or did you have to sit in a certain place? Well, I sat in the seats they sent. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and I don't remember that either. Uh, but the hospital was, the system was severely segregated. All black patients came to home folks, all white went to number one. And we had a black staff, medical and nursing at home folks, and a white staff at city number one. And different units at WashU would supervise and help with the teaching programs at Homo Phillips. How was that? How did that work out? The relationships between the relationships were good. Uh, the person who was the supervisor of the pediatrics when I came to home was Dr. Park White, and he was looking for someone who would do a residency and take the board and do practice pediatrics and show people that black people can do it. Um, and everybody said, oh, if you really, I wanted the pediatric residency. I knew that when I came. And they said, oh, all you have to do is do it and Dr. Wright will help you. And I talked to him and, you know, the sky's limit was his idea. You can do anything you want to do. And then, uh, he met my parents. They came to see me. and. They had a great friendship because Dr. White was a great reader of the Bible and Shakespeare, as was my father. And he would say things and my father would know right where they were from and, and answer him back. So they got to be, because uh, whenever they were in town, we would all go out to dinner, I'd go to the Whites to dinner. They would come to my house to dinner. Uh, I think, uh, we may be starting in the middle, but the thing that has, has really sustained me and has largely responsible for my ability to believe in myself and go ahead and do things is within my family. But tell me about Now, that. my grandfather, my mother's father, my maternal grandfather, was a real estate agent, dealer, a real estate dealer in Atlanta, Georgia. And according to the number of houses he owned at the time of his death and some of which we are still trying to get rid of, and he's been dead 41 years, Please. he was wealthy at one time. He traveled all over the world surveying real estate for different people. And when we were in high school, we'd bring our English history books, our English literature books home. He would show us pictures of the streets he'd been on. Um, he believed in the education of women. He sent all his daughters to college and his son. His son went to medical school. One daughter went to Oberlin, one daughter went to Fisk, and my mother went to Atlanta University. At the time of his death, um, the people who wrote him letters, we found that he had chosen, he told us to get this woman undertaker, but we found the reason he wanted her is he had supported her effort to get a license and to get a plot of grand ground and build her building on Auburn Avenue in Atlanta against the opposition of the male undertakers. Uh, so we had used her. We found the woman doctor wrote him letters saying what he had meant to her all these years and how he had helped her get her practice established and get going. And so that he was a strong supporter of women. All of his daughters finished college and worked and had their own jobs and their own money. So that I grew up knowing that women do it and that women can do it and women should do it and that you shouldn't be not allowed to do it. Now my father was from Athens, Georgia and 
he left home because his parents did not want him to go to med school or to go to college. They thought the best thing for a black boy was to be a good chauffeur. And of course, my father's late approval was far too bright for that. What did his father do? His father, I don't know what he did, but at the time I knew him, he was very old and not doing much. He died when I was around nine or 10 years old. And at that time, I think my parents, my father was supporting him. Um, your father was self-motivated? My father was self-motivated and helped on by his high school teachers in Athens, Georgia, who had a sister living in Atlanta and encouraged him to run away and run to Nashville and go to med school, which he did. And he worked his way through Meharry. Graduation day, he owed them $50, so they wouldn't give him his diploma and they wouldn't let him march in the line. They gave him a letter so he could take the state board and practice medicine. $50, think of them graduating now and owe 10000 Yeah, that's right. Maybe that was like 10000 But that was like 10000 then. Anyway, so I come from, I came from that kind of family. Also, they had a strong family life according to the pictures we had. Um, starting with my, my, my grandmother had pictures of all her original relatives and our original slave relatives. So there's been a strong line of yeah. continuity. We knew who the white family was who owned them. And they are still in Atlanta. And interestingly, they are doctors too, though I don't think that has anything to do with my being a doctor. Because I didn't know it at the time. Um, Emory University Medical School was encouraged by Andrew Calhoun to join Atlanta University Medical School and make one solid medical school. And the library at, at Emory University Medical School is named for him. I went there and found uh, his, looked through his personal records, and I found a letter from his daughter to him at the time Sherman was burning through, <laughs> burning through Georgia, and she was telling him the black people, Negroes were running, and she was making him some gloves to keep him warm. And he had taken my grandmother, my great-grandmother, and his youngest son and he was in Columbus, Georgia. I found this letter, and at the end of the letter, she says, love to Kitty and uh, Simon. Those are my great-great-grandmother and grandmother. Mm -hmm. So I know where they were and what they were doing at that time. We also found a piece of property he left her in, in Noonan, Georgia, mm -hmm. when he died in gratitude for the things he'd done, she had done in rearing his children. His wife died when his youngest child was born. So we knew all of that about them. You really stabilized with them. Long ago. Long ago. Uh, I had no direct relationship with them ever, and they do not know me, and I do not know them. Uh, my grandmother, I think, cut off the relationship. I can remember during the Depression, she would get a phone call, and then a long black car would drive up, and a chauffeur would come to the house, and she would go out to the car. She never let them come in her house. And I decided that she, when she married my grandfather, she owned a lot of property in Atlanta, and I decided that she was a granddaughter, a daughter of this family, because she had, she was red-headed, very light-skinned, and blue-eyed. And Your that, grandmother. My grandmother, and uh, You're very fair. they had let her out with, uh, with property, and then they were seeing her, you know, they were trying to be sure she was all right during the Depression. 
and I think the pain of being let out of your family, you mm -hmm. know. They cared about her, but. But you're black, you know. Anyway, she, this is my conception of it. She never, never accepted anything else from them and never let, when they would come to, the, she would just go out to the car and talk to them and they would go on. Now, when she was very old, just the two or three years before she died, one of the daughters called up and wanted to bring her mother to see her. And I have several postcards that this woman had written saying, you remember this chair, who made it Kitty? And that they called her Kitty. And she wanted to bring her mother to see my grandmother. My mother said, sure, come on. Well, the funniest thing was, here she came, a little bitty white-haired lady with blue eyes with a red-haired daughter. And there is my aunt sitting there red-headed <laughs> blue-eyed with her little and we laughed these two old women met and wept and cried and talked uh, I said my sister said I think that's two old sisters <laughs> isn't this an incredible world it's an incredible thing that people do to each mm -hmm. other um, and we keep doing it we don't learn we don't learn for example, just take the the motion picture, uh, Rain Man. Mm -hmm. Oh, how did that father do that to that boy? All those years, not telling he had a brother, not see him again, leave him in jail three days, you know. Everything he could, could do to make him ferociously angry. And the boy turned into a hustler. Mm -hmm. uh, and when he finds his brother and in three days realizes what has been done to him, uh, because I make, begin to make some kind of turnaround. Well, I think that has happened to lots of people, oh, yes. you know. And some people know it has happened to them and understand it, and some do not. Some don't, and then all of a sudden it's... Never know why they're ferocious yes. and angry. Yes. Never know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Too bad they don't have the opportunity to That's right. Find so I think coming from a strong family, um, during the Depression, my grandfather had property and no money. People didn't, couldn't pay rent. They paid him slowly. My father was a doctor during the Depression. You know how much money he did not have. Right. And despite that fact, he sent us to private school. We did not go to public school. I still think public education is letting people down. It's not changing with the times. And everybody takes his special argument to dump it on the public school instead of letting the public school change and educators do their thing. We pay for our sins. We pay for our sins. Uh, you were the first black, first female pediatrician at Homer G. No, indeed. Women had come through there for years. No, indeed. I wonder where I got this information. I don't know. I was the first <laughs> black pediatrician. You know where I think I got it from? I think I got it out of... Um, yeah, but I was not uh, the first uh, woman at Homer Phillips. Lillian Elizabeth Courtney was a GYN OB surgeon. No, you weren't the first female pediatrician? Yeah. Oh, that's what I said. In St. Louis, but not, not, at, Homer. not at Homer Phillips. Dr. Blanche Bourne, who is still at practicing in Washington, came in ahead of me. Okay. Okay. So that, that being, you know, I wanted to, to discuss the fact that you were female and 
what that meant. Well, it meant but that all the same chauvinistic practices that we are doing today, today were heaped upon you in full with people thinking it was all right to do it. And whether or not you let it mow you under depended on your own individual strengths. And from what you just said, you had Now, a I had a father who told me other than to learn medicine and be read, be prepared when the time comes, you do not have to make any compromises to get to be an intern or resident or to go get through medical school. And you know what he meant. And I have seen lots of young women who think they have to let the senior supervisor pat on them so they can pass the subject or they can get a residency. But I know that you do not have to do it. Um, my mother said to me when I left to go to med school, you will have to be very careful. They do not treat women and men equally, and you will have to see that you get treated equally. So if you yeah. leave home with two people telling yeah. you that, you know. You, and, yeah, and you've had a long background. Had a long okay, background. Okay, so, so you were emotionally prepared and ready. Emotionally prepared and ready to, to go on my own. Uh -huh. so, uh -huh. so tell me, when you came here, how did you find things? Uh, how did you find care? How did you find treatment? How did you find the people? Not how did you find them, but what did you see? The, the population of St. Louis was ignorant. The black population was ignorant. It lived, it mainly lived between, uh, I would say between Vandeventa and Taylor, mm -hmm. and a few people on Enright and to St. Louis Avenue, and that was the whole area in which the black population lived until the real estate thing got broken down and you could buy a house anywhere, you could move in a house anywhere. So it was a small, contained, organized community. Everyone knew everyone. There was no random destruction of property like you see now because it was the only place they had to live and they owned it and they kept it up. Um, I used to make house calls all over it. You know, there, they, there was a marvelous group of black people who lived in the Mill Creek Valley, which is between Grand, they lived between Grand and Channing on Walnut Street. Uh, the street was not even paved. And I could go down there at night and make house calls. And other than someone would send out word that the doctor was on the block, no one bothered me. Up and down Delmar, those four-story houses where people were living three and four families in a building. I could drive up, people waving me from the fourth floor and, and everyone would know I'm in the building. I would walk all the way up there with my bag in my pocketbook and I've never been disturbed. You know, I'm afraid to do that now. The last house call, I used to make house calls in Pruitt. I go where I've made house calls in all the projects. The last one I made was at this uh, one way downtown uh, what's the name? I'll think of the name up in a minute. Uh, and I went up to the 10th floor to see this baby. And when I went, came out to get on the elevator, a couple was fighting. And I was standing in the elevator. He came running to get in the elevator. She came with a pot of hot grease to throw. Oh, and I said, wait, let me out. And I promise you, I will not ever come back here, no matter how sick a baby is. I will not, I'm not going to be burned to death. Uh, and he said, look at you, scaring her. I, anyway, that was my last house call in the project. Uh, so that you see things had really changed. Yes. Um, and, and the in the old uh, tenement houses, all you could make a house call and 
anyone else who had a sick baby might come and, and say, my baby's sick, will you stop on your way down? But they would never think of hurting you, or uh, snatching your bag or snatching your pocketbook. I've been in all sorts of homes all over St. Louis in the years I made house calls. With, I used to make 10 and 12 a night. Right. <laughs> um, Dr. Nash, how did you, besides their being ignorant, um, well, look, what did what did a um, an average uh, or below average economically economically uh, family do when their they child had got jobs sick? That people when their child got sick, they came to homophobes. A uh, few white pediatricians saw them, and they could go to Children's Hospital in the segregated ward, which was known as Butler Ward. And the last big polio epidemic, it was the only place that was really isolatable. <laughs> so they made that the polio unit, and black children were integrated into the wards of Children's Hospital. And how were they treated? Were they treated they were treated. Well? They were treated fine. It wasn't that. It was just and when they were moved into the wards, they had been being put on Butler Ward no matter what was wrong with them because they were black. It was the only reason you went to Butler Ward. Whereas the hospital was divided into the infant ward, the, the toddler's ward, the infectious disease ward. What was before the... This is before no, the... No, 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 before the infectious disease, I guess. Infants. Oh, infants. And newborns were put on the floor. Three to four-year-olds, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Is the way the hospital was divided. But black children, no matter how old or what was wrong, you went on Butler Ward. And it was isolated from the hospital. <laughs> Uh, they had integrated the nursing staff, and when the last polio epidemic came, they had to put po they needed a place to isolate the polio patients, so they put them on Butler Ward and integrated the black children in the ward. Not because they wanted to, but because they needed it was a place. Expedient. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, when so the quality of care. The quality of care at Children's has been superb. It's one of the six best, if not one of the best, children's hospitals in the United States. And the quality of care in uh, at Homer G. Phillips? It was fair to medium because you can remember now you didn't have real facilities. When I went to Homer Phillips, the, the premature mortality rate and the newborn mortality rate were scandalous. Eighty percent of the 500 babies born weighing under five pounds died every year. Uh, because despite the number of small babies they had, they had no incubators. And when I asked for incubators, they said, how many does city have? You can't have more than they have. They didn't have any, so I didn't get any. So they got some, I got three. So I asked for an isolate for years. I needed isolate. That's that womb with a view. They didn't have one, so I couldn't have one. And I had I started a premature clinic where the pre to follow the preemie baby after I discharged him, and they didn't have a clinic down there. And I asked for Wetzler Grizz. These are growth charts, and the man thought I wanted some kind of metal plate. He didn't know what it was, and then he checked. They don't have that at City Number One. You can't have it. Now, how did it work at Homer G. Phillips? In other words, when you were asking for these things, not able to get them. Um, for example, I wrote. Did yeah. what? Go ahead. That's what I, I wrote. A letter every year, every six months, to the medical director of Homer Phillips, saying 
the unit, the newborn nursery at Homer Phillips is in shambles. It is dirty, it is unclean. Newborns are left from 11 to 7 a.m. without a nursing going in there. The lights are turned out and nobody goes in until morning. You were going in at the morning find the baby's card had come loose and he had bled to death. Uh, I went in there, you found a mice jumping out the crib, the bassinet. This is in the 40s? This is in, the, this is in the early 50s, 40s and 50s, and we are going to have a disaster. And I wrote the same letter every six months, every six months. Well, we had a disaster. We had uh, two or 300 babies with E. coli diarrhea, and I think 30 died. It was terrible, you know, all this diarrhea. And the hospital commissioner came out to have a meeting with the medical director and they've come down and get on the pan, doctor, why haven't you reported that this unit is in such a bad... I've just went down with all my letters. I have a letter to you every six months to you and to the medical director telling you this was going to happen. And I'm asking for incubators, asking to change the nursing service over to pediatrics, asking for nursing education for the nurses who run the unit, mm -hmm. and asking for modern equipment. And, and you haven't done it. And I have told you we were going to have a disaster. So I'm off the pan <laughs> immediately, mm -hmm. and what we got was a whole, uh, we got the nursing service changed, we got the nurses sent off for educational purposes, we got a unit built, and we got uh, modern equipment. All because... At the, at the price of those children? At the price of the children, and the price of men reading a letter and thinking you don't know what you're talking about, mm -hmm. you're a woman. Uh, for example, there are some congenital diseases uh, that children are born with and you explain it to parents. There is one called brittle bones or osteogenesis imperfecta congenita. This baby named Alice Green was born with this. And during the intrauterine life, when the baby moves around, his bones break. And during delivery, when the uterus is contracting on him, it cracks him. And cracks the skull coming through the birth canal. I tried to explain it to the father. He couldn't understand how a baby's bones could all be broken like this. I showed him the x-rays, I showed him the textbook. I said it's like when you crack an egg by dropping it or handling it too roughly, it breaks but nothing runs out, it cracks. So his concept was I had dropped this baby. Oh. The medical director sent for me. I had to get the but he didn't know about it. It's in the book. It's textbook. This baby has osteogenesis. Uh, and no one has dropped it, but its bones are brittle and they break. Uh, I think some of the first child abuse things in the city were at Homer Phillips. Uh, the social worker and I, when she moved to California, Janie Lee was wonderful. We began picking up these children with cigarette burns, broken ribs, and whatnot. And we took one baby, and all the newspapers, instead of finding out what has really happened, took a picture of this couple standing by the baby's bed, empty bed, saying, uh, pediatric supervisor and social worker, uh, take the parents' lovely baby from them. Like we had done something mm -hmm. wrong to the parents. We had taken a baby who had a broken arm and broken ribs. And we're still seeing that. Yeah. But 
we had a child with Catholic priest brought it over, said if he comes to school barefooted again during the winter, I don't know what I will do. I buy him shoes and socks, and he comes back the next day and they're gone. We began to see that in the in the 50s. And, and what were they doing? Taking them and selling them? Selling them. Selling them. Dr. Nash, what did you do? How did you keep yourself going with these injustices? And well, you know, they're not they my making. And no, 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 but, but you, you had to bat your, bat your head against, against the wall. Against the wall with right. the, with the um, inequities and the, and the, the people that just sat at their desks. and. Sometimes and you succeed, you have to keep a sense of humor. And you had to do the things that were fulfilling to you. I never missed the symphony. I used to leave visiting hours and go to the symphony. So your head would quiet down and go to the garden, go to the things, go to the art museum. And then I had, you had friends, uh, travel, went around the world one year in 63, uh, and realized this is not a total way of life. After living it, I don't have it here in my house, you know. I got off the board of one children's agency here because they wanted us to go to picnics with the families to prove we didn't think we were better. It's not that I think I'm better. I know that I'm better than a family who has to beat his children and drink alcohol and cocaine. I am better than that. And I don't have to socialize with them. I cannot bear it. I want everything for them. Yeah, I want them to have a picnic. But not I'm friend. not at that level. I, I think that's what's wrong with some things where the drug addict is now going back to treat, the ex-drug addict is now the one who's supposed to treat the drug addict. I don't believe it. Tell me why you don't believe in the drug Because I have found them not able to do it. I have found them as abusive as they ever were, you know. I, the one of the worst ones I saw was an ex-drug addict whose wife was really afraid of him and who had given his wife drugs during the pregnancy to keep her nerves together and were annoyed with us when we had to let this baby down at birth. He said he was a drug addict and he knew how to handle it and he didn't want any social workers coming in his place in his home. It always amazes me, it seems that anybody today hangs out a shingle as a psychotherapist. And I well, say, that's what I, it's that kind yeah. of thing with no education, what, yeah. a high school education uh, versus my 20 years of education, it can't be put up against. Yeah. I don't think. Now my experience is I tell the teenagers, they say, are you for real? Take him outdoors? I said, look, how old are you? I'm 16. I have been doing this 40 years, probably before your mother was born. And I assure you, the only person in here who doesn't know is you. You know, the baby knows he can go outdoors. I know. You don't know. And they are unwilling to take advice. But back to homophobes. At Christmas time, the first year I was supervisor, on the radio, not the television. Santa Claus goes to Children's Hospital. Santa Claus goes to County. Santa Claus goes to number one. So I went down to the social worker and said, when is Santa Claus coming here? The SOB, you know, and she said, he never has come here. And what are you talking about? I said, well, call him up and tell them we believe in Santa Claus and we've, we're seeing that he's going everywhere else. Sticks, Sprugs, and Famous. And they came rushing. They had not ever thought that to come. But they did come and ask. We were in a desperate situation because the city was not buying any play equipment for the children on the floor. Nothing to play with. No puzzles, no toys, no books. 
no nothing. So when you would go to your your director of the hospital. This was a social worker. Yes, but I mean when you would. The medical director himself was not sure that I should be there. Uh-huh. He said, you might as well, how old are you? You might as well stay because doesn't anybody want anyone as young as you for a doctor. Now how about somebody like uh, Park White? And, Park mean, White was saying, you can do it, you can do it. But he, he was, would, he was the. Yes. Pediatric supervisor, and he was doing his own practice. Uh -huh. He wasn't at the so hospital only, every but, day. But you would discuss. Your I would tell him I, I t that kind of thing. I didn't discuss with anybody. I'd go do it. The dietitian at the hospital uh, said the the children's diets were fixed in the special diet kitchen, and I went to her and I said, "Why don't we ever have bananas or ice cream?" They're the two easiest to digest things, and, uh, and ice cream is a national dessert. There's no one who doesn't like ice cream. Uh, she said, here's the grocery list. It is marked. Bananas and ice cream for the pediatric ward and city number one only. I mean, that is intricate prejudice. And so we wrote a letter. We want bananas and ice cream. So then they said, well, okay, you can have it one week, and they can have it the next. Then they got angry that they got their ice cream and bananas taken away from them. So then they said, okay, everybody can have it any time of day he likes. So then we got bananas and ice cream three or four days a week. Is that crazy? Uh, you know, it's like mind-boggling to, to That you have to go down to and listen. chop yeah. away all those little things. Yes. I didn't need anybody to give me permission to do that. You just did I it. did it. I did it. I said, we're going to have bananas and ice cream. It sounds to me like they were very fortunate that all this family put you in a mindset that brought you here and you could do these things because it took somebody like yourself to make it happen. I guess, I guess, I don't know, but anyway, it got better and better. We trained lots of pediatricians. We have trained about 30 or 35 who are board certified now. and. I'm, I wasn't certain that homophobia should be kept open because I don't believe in segregated stuff. I'm not living in a segregated, uh, my world is not segregated, it is in three circles, you know, and they interlap. What are they? This is a, the all black thing I know, all white thing I know, and the black white, they mix together. And I think if, if everyone doesn't do that, the children come in, they are so cruel to me, at school, I said, they didn't have to like you. You have to go there. Whether or not people like you or respect you, it's going to be, a, it's you. It's not anything else. I've been talking to the uh, two black women who are in freshman med school. I said, you know, you, do you know how many heads have been cracked against the wall so that you could sit here tonight, a bright freshman medical school at Wash U, and your only complaint is how they feel about black people? I said, who said they have to like you? They have to let you come. And you have to do well. You, if you want an A in anatomy, then you go home and study. You know that? I don't have any sympathy for that. I want you to be there. I want you to be in the position. I don't want you to not be allowed in simply because you're black. Where does it come from, that kind of thinking? In the black kids? Yes. I don't know because I would have given anything to get to a medical school like WashU or Harvard or mm -hmm. Yale. Maybe I would have been overwhelmed by it. I don't know. I don't. I don't think so. 
But your priority would have been to get that A. So my priority would have been for the A. My, that was always my priority would be for the A or the B. And I, maybe if your priority was that, you wouldn't notice that much if they liked you or they didn't like you. That's true. But I have not been anywhere I didn't have friends. I've never been anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, even the white visiting professors who used to come to homophobes, they were really very nice to me. I've just... I guess it's the way you present yourself, you know, I'm not yes, sure. Yes, yes, but I'm, I wonder what, what sidetracks sidetracks people? people today that, that, that they just go, go and do what they... Go straight ahead. Yes. Well, you know, I had my father saying, fight the race, fight, get everything you can get so that you cannot be turned away no matter where you go or what you apply for. Get everything you can. Take all the exams and pass. Get your boards and join the academy. Mm -hmm. Then be, fight. Be prepared. Then you've fight. got something to fight. You got. You can. They can't tell you you can't come. You got something to fight with. Somebody that I interviewed or worked with at the uh, history museum was telling the children uh, we we taught them to do oral histories mm -hmm. and had somebody they that was a value that mm -hmm. could tell about the community at a certain time or. Like yourself, who mm -hmm. made an impact, and they would interview them. But they said, uh, "Learn math. Everybody oh. always needs math. somebody who's good at math." That's you know? true. And, and, yeah. and, and it was good advice. But I think this interesting: girls are better at it than boys, mm -hmm. and yet they don't do it. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I have a niece who is a CPA, and she is a whiz. Very few people passed the CPA thing, all four parts, the first time around. Boom, straight through. All right. Well, Dr. Nash, now, how did how did things begin to change? Um, how did things begin I, to get better? Things began to slowly get better when we had an influx of foreign graduates, and we got all sorts of foreign graduates at Homo Phillips because they began to let black people in, and they skim off the good black ones into the white, big white hospitals, which was great for them, don't mistake me. But then it began to leave us with no interns and residents. Well, say, say that, explain that again. You had the influx they, of They people. started integrating hospitals and integrating uh, in, the, in the 60s, integrating medical schools, integrating house staffs. Mm -hmm so that your very bright black ones who had all come to homophobes and all done well were now being sought after because it's much better to have that bright black guy who speaks English <laughs> than this guy who will learn it if he keeps talking to you. <laughs> I have gone down in the medical director's office many times and a foreign student is sitting there wanting a residency and nobody wants it because he won't speak English. And he's, I'm desperate because nobody wanted pediatrics. And he said, oh, I will do it if you help me. I said, if you sign up for three years, I'll take you. <laughs> we have a marvelous guy named Yaka Jiggly. He's back in Turkey. We have another fine Turkish fellow who's <laughs> up in Boston just zooming away. And they could not speak English. <laughs> And Dr. Tanriova, right over in um, East St. Louis, who's got a big practice room, no English. And they, everybody said, she's too old. I said, sign her up. I'll take her if she comes to pediatrics. They made marvelous residents. They were trained well, and they did learn to speak English. But I used to go down there and harvest mine among the people they didn't want. 
they got so they would uh, that was funny, you know. Uh-huh. So but in turn, while you were taking those at Homer G. Phillips, the, the good black the ones good was black getting ones. in everywhere, except Wash U and Children's Hospital. They were the last to fall, <laughs> the very last. And then they would take in people who weren't capable, and then say, see, they can't do it. Uh, the first black guy that went to Wash U in med school, oh, God, poor fellow. Why did he do that? He was dumb. Why they take the worst? I don't know, except to prove he can't do it. And why did they want him to come from Pruitt Igo? I don't know. Pruitt Igo kid can hardly come out here to Sumner High School out of his neighborhood. You can't take someone who never goes out of his neighborhood and put him over here and think he can do well. He has to get accustomed to being in that kind of neighborhood. Well, do you, you know? find that your ministry of the government does the same yes, thing? Yes. Uh -huh. They pick the wrong... Pick the wrong one. Yes. Pick the one you know cannot succeed. Yeah. And so why don't you go down to Atlanta, Georgia, to Spelman yeah. and Morehouse, where a generation, yeah. three generation families of education, all the people on that part send their children northeast. They don't send them out here to them. They don't right. know about it. Of course we do the same thing with some of our presidents. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the one we've got now. Excuse me, just. When did you set up your own practice? July 1949, July 1st. Did you go out on your own by yourself? Mm -hmm. or did you join? I'm against everyone's advice except my father, who knew I could do it. And, he, whom, and I knew I could do it because I had seen him do it. I knew he had done it. You know, I had, when I was a teenager, I used to work in his office in the summer. And I enjoyed it thoroughly. Against his advice, I used to read his medical books, and I could put them. I would hear him coming when he would get off the elevator, and I'd run and put the books up. <laughs> <laughs> I read about the. I read the first articles about sickle cell anemia in my father's office. Well, you're, you're, that's your specialty. No, no. I, I'm just a I, pediatrician. I, I have a lot of sickle cell patients because I'm yeah, black. I've got and it have written black. right here, but somebody really did a. Did a, um, it's not my specialty. Yeah, no. a, uh, I have a lot of sickle cell patients wrong, because I do a lot of supportive stuff for them, mm -hmm. just like you would do for any other patient with a long-term chronic illness. Mm -hmm. uh, if I had a specialty, it would have been neonatal stuff. I'm glad not to be in it now, though, because I'm, I would have a lot of trouble uh, with what is happening in neonatal units now, saving infants are going to be totally handicapped all their lives. Blind, deaf, and no brain. Oh, but you mean saving them? Right, but they breathing. shouldn't be saved. There's a point at which you have to stop some of this. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure the where the point is. I'm glad I'm not in the position yeah. to have to make the decision. And you just have those feelings. But I had one of those children in the office the other day, and an 11-year-old said, what's wrong with that little boy in the wheelchair? And he has, he's blind and deaf, has a tracheostomy, has a, a feeding tube in his stomach, and has no cerebral hemispheres. Nothing. Mm -hmm. And I said, he doesn't have a brain. She said, well, why are you all keeping him alive? I said, who is to make the decision? This is an 11-year-old to not keep him alive. Who is going to kill him? I know that I can't kill him. And would you like to have the job? She said, no, but why did you all keep him alive? And I don't think we even know at the time it's happening. Yeah. But there is a point at which it has to stop. Because we get increasing numbers of them. Mm -hmm. Look at all that wonderful new knowledge. The new knowledge is wonderful and new equipment. 
which you can attribute to the space age is marvelous. The things that they can do without invasive techniques now, marvelous. It's a, it's a... You know, we used to have a nurse in the premium unit say, this baby, something wrong with it today. It's not like it was yesterday. There's something wrong with this baby. And in a few days it would die. And we were posted and would have a big brain hemorrhage. Well now when the nurse tells you that if you do a scan, you can see the hemorrhage right now. You know he's had a brain bleed and you can start treating it. Sometimes you can stop it in time, sometimes you can't. Mm -hmm. But what we used to go on field and invasive techniques, we now can do ultrasounds, CAT scans, magnetic resonance imaging, and make your diagnosis right away and do something and know that when the nurse looks at the baby and says that something has happened to him, he's different. That you can check the head and you find he's had a bleed. Um, so a lot of those children, the brain gets destroyed, the thinking part. And in some it doesn't, but you don't know which one to save, mm -hmm. which one to let go so you save all. And I think the ability of the doctors to come out and explain the communicative process is a fall. Well, I think it's, it's lagging behind. Mm -hmm. I went to talk with the Dr. Coles and a family, a 14-year-old girl who was the mother with a grandmother. Neither of them were very bright. And she had started vaginal bleeding and the mother called 9-11. 9-11 called three hospitals, and each one told them, no, come here. Regional, Barnes, and somewhere else. Turned her down. And Why? Because she was 14 and bleeding, vaginally. So? so he carried her to Children's Hospital, and she delivered this baby in the emergency room. And of course, the baby is not any good. I went to a meeting which they were trying to explain how damaged the brain was and that they were having to tap it daily draw it to keep the pressure down so the baby would just breathe and it wasn't sucking at all. And the grandmother said her daughter had had a head injury and she came around. A 19 year old girl with a mild concussion will come around. Uh, and she, they wanted the baby saved because they believed in the Lord and the Lord saves babies and he will help her. Mother's 14. And the most she got out the whole conference is she got pictures of her baby in the incubator she can take back to school and say, see my baby. Makes her important. Mm -hmm. um, they put the shun in, they sent the baby home and they've already been hotline for leaving it alone. Mm -hmm. So that they aren't able to take care mm -hmm. of it and then when they take it on, they don't even know how is it going to complicate their lives? We tried to tell her. Educated people who mean well have difficult times with Educated like people that. won't take them home. <laughs> Did you know that? I have some real educated ones who say she cannot come here. And she has never gone home. And where does she She's go? She's in the state system. So that educated people know what they can take on and know what they cannot take on and know what they aren't going to do. And the uneducated, in fact, in, I'm working with the SB40 tax board here in the city. I've been on it since its inception. SB40? That is the, for the mentally retarded development of disabled. We get a tax funds from the state, city, 
to fund services that they need and uh, we fund respite care because if you have a totally hand totally bedridden and disabled patient at home you can't do it all day every day without screening you can have respite care in which a person can come in your home and do it for you or you can have respite care he goes to a nursing home or a respite home for a week or two weeks and the whole family gets a rest from it or on your child's normal child's birthday you take him uh, to the respite center they show this thing on autism with Quincy one year in which the autistic boy was allowed to lie in the middle of the birthday party with people having to step over him until he disrupted it completely. But, you know, that was a bad thing for them to show in that way because it showed the parents weren't even thinking about the autistic child's needs nor the normal needs. Because the autistic child could have been put in his room and he wouldn't have known where he was. Mm -hmm. Or he could have been sent for respite care. So we do respite care. Now, we pay for respite care. We pay for respite care at Rankin Jordan. We pay for respite care at Children's Home Society, St. Charles Respite Center, and anyone else who asks for funds for respite care. And the thing that's interesting to me is each year they're turning back, they're not used. I have black patients who won't use respite care because they feel it's mine and I should take care of it. Yeah. And they feel they guilty if they send him away. Only when they find out what respite care really means and they have used it do they, <gasps> I didn't know I could get relief. Uh, Everybody needs help. Everyone needs help and so we have to practically choke it down them but once we get it down them then they can't get enough. When did you know it was right, the right time for you to go into your private practice? Well I was through with my residence mm -hmm. and, and I had to do, make a move. I had met a woman in the Children's Bureau, Dr. Maisel Williams, and she said, Helen, you need a research job. I'm going to try to get you a thing. And she got it, but she got it after I had set everything up and was practicing, and I couldn't chop it down that fast. And she got it Illinois. Um, I'm not sorry. You're a people person. Right. I'm not you sorry. You have too much to give. And uh, I have not had the only days in my office since I opened July 1st, 1941, that I don't have a new patient are the days I won't take in. I have days of no new patients today. And that's the only day I don't have a new patient. And despite the fact that five other black pediatricians are practicing here in town now, which lets you see how the population has grown. That's all That makes six of you? Them Maybe more than six, but I'm just saying that each year they have come on, and each year I can't tell. That's why when I hear HMOs and hospital squabbling, those are our patients. You can't. Who's them? It's the patient is his own self. Mm -hmm. Belongs to himself. He goes away, please. Getting treated. Right. Um, so where did you set your first practice? Vanderbilt and Fenton has been torn down, my dear. My office building had the office I rented had been a doctor's office for more. It was an old St. Louis doctor. He'd had a stroke. And at the time I rented it, he had been unconscious a month or two, and his wife was shutting things down. And I rented the office. I took up the floors in there, and the papers on the floor had been put down the year before I was born, mm -hmm. which was fun. And I got the office started and rolling, and he came to and wanted his office back, but it was too late. <laughs>
but it was in Vanderbilt and Finney. That was in the middle of the black business community. There was part of it was down at Market and Olive, and the other part was out there. The Southwestern Bell had a segregated office for telephone for black people, and they had all black employees. And I went over there to speak. They used to bring their children to me, and I went over there. They still do, and some of them bring their grandchildren. And they said, your bill has a B on it. We don't see many black people's bills with a B on it. It's a level at which you're paying. They have them coded so they know you're black and you're white, or you're black and you don't pay, and you're black and you pay. Intricate, segregation is intricate.